Our home is surrounded by an aspen forest whose leaves are all pale from the leaf miner. In our yard, we also have a smattering of dead willows, a couple of big cottonwood and birch trees, a pine tree out one window long ago attacked by the pine beetle and still holding on, and a clump of seemingly healthy spruce trees. When's the last time you walked in the forest? Have you noticed changes? Hi, I'm Nikki Skuse. Welcome to my podcast, 54 Degrees North, Climate Chronicles of the Bulkley Valley. The average temperature increase for the Bulkley Valley is already over 1.5 degrees, the lower limit being sought by the signatories to the Paris Climate Accord. Climate change has already impacted forest health, whether through pests, such as the mountain pine beetle, pathogens, such as Dothostroma, or drought and wildfire events. We'll talk more about bugs and wildfires in other episodes, but we'll learn more about these other climate impacts on forest health and projections for adaptation. While none of this sounds super uplifting, trees also suck. In a good way. We'll end the episode with recommendations on what BC can do to mitigate climate change with forests. I first spoke with Will McKenzie about the climatic region that we live in and how these seem to be changing. So the ecological classification program that that I work in has, uh, it kind of, instead of sort of mapping climate variables, it's always always sort of tried to uh, designate ecologically similar climate areas. So climate that's variable, but is similar enough that it supports the same type of vegetation. And so we have a bunch of different levels of that classification. Like the zone is the upper level. And most people, it's pretty obvious to notice a zone change because it's a change in tree species. Like very obvious. You go from the coast and your western cedar and, and uh, western red cedar and western hemlock. And you're in Morristown. And then as you come to Smithers, you get into spruce and pine. So those are zone level changes that reflect climate. And so at a broad level and then at much finer levels of you know, resolution, we have a spatial map of these bioclimatic regions. And so you can then use those as uh, to model forward with climate change. <clears throat> and this is the subboreal spruce dry cool subzone. And then uh, with climate change projections, some of them, the coast influence presses in uh, inland. And, and, you know, we have hemlock right on the side of the mountain here. So the interior cedar hemlock zone isn't far away so if that starts to press inland then we might have areas that are currently supporting spruce and pine largely maybe subalpine fir and the climates will start looking more like morristown so then you can sort of translate okay if it's going to look like morristown climates then we can probably start translating what we know to do on the ground in morristown to to smithers reforestation is active management. That's something that we're actually doing on the landscape. So if we're talking about adaptation to climate change, we're already doing something. We just need to start doing it with climate change, you know, in mind, right? right. So, I mean, the worst case for forestry would be you, you plant trees that are suited now and four years out before they've matured, the climate becomes unsuitable and then you know, they start falling over and dying, right? So a bad investment, not only for the economy, but also for forest ecosystems. 
So if you were to also think, like, in terms of some of the potential climate modeling and on that, I mean, you mentioned <clears throat> that we're going to get probably more um, coastal creep in or whatever. So what, what might, you know, if you were to project out, I don't know, 50, 100 years, what might this region look like? Or what kind of tree species might we have more of or less of? Well, that's the, like, we sort of know the temperature is going to get warmer. Um, but the specifics about what will happen is where the uncertainty comes in. Like, we're certain that climate change is going to happen, but we're un- weather isn't changing as fast. And so what you're actually, what we're likely to end up with is, okay, yeah, the, the average gets warmer, but you don't necessarily get rid of the cold periods, and you get some really long dry periods. Like, you know, the last two years were super droughty, right? So, you, we, you know, the modeling sort of suggests that that will become more common. So that's a really hard thing to deal with in terms of planning, right? Because you sort of, you're not sure whether if you can plant warmer species because the cold's going to persist and you're not sure if the stuff that is cold tolerant can handle the hot, dry years. Diversity it creates more balance because it's, it's, you know, you have uh, more things that can, you know, as an ecosystem can withstand the as a whole, it can it can withstand more more uh, change of condition. On that too, though, when you think that certain areas should then be identified almost as climate refugia, like having yeah. you know that are going to be more apt to adapt and yeah, yeah, and there has been some work on that with conservation organizations for sure, looking for the areas that are would be the best, uh, you know, able to adapt to like a range of climate change but also probably are relatively intact already pretty much the northern mountains of bc are one of the areas it's kind of flagged as that right because it's it's kind of mostly boreal forest all that's going to get you know uh, not super warm it's going to improve there's a, a huge elevation range so that you know migration from lower elevations to upper elevations is quite easy for animals and plants to do and of course it's relatively unpeopled and eroded you know especially for like all the north american you know large mammals that used to be pretty much continent-wide have you know they've largely contracted to the mountainous areas of western north america and then the the pressures kind of even pushed them north so that northern bc and probably the yukon are probably some of the best places for Refugia. I cannot let this pass me by. Dothostroma, as it turns out, is a is kind of like a poster child now for climate change. Alex Woods. I'm a research forest pathologist. I work for the BC government. The late 1990s, I was out to a plantation up Highway 37 that a consultant had asked me to come and look at, figure out what the root disease was in this area. And on the walk in, we're walking through this plantation that would have been maybe 25 years old, lodgepole pine, and the trees were dying. And I couldn't figure it out. There was trees that had no needles. They were, yeah, they were falling apart. So that was a concern. The next year, so in 98, we get uh, calls in the, in the office that there's plantations turning red up Highway 37 and in the Kispiox. 
And so I go out and look at them, and at first we thought it might be winter damage or something, and then, no, I figure out, no, it's a foliar disease. But foliar diseases are kind of a flashy thing. They come and go. They look terrible at the time, but you come back a few years later and they, everything's recovered, typically. But in this situation in, in the uh, Kispiox Valley, I went back to the plantations that I told the district people, relax, it's a foliar disease, it'll get better. The, these plantations that I'd said would get better were dead. And, and there was lots of them. And there was red plantations all over the place. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is really different. And so I still didn't know what it was. It was a foliar disease. I didn't know which one. Foliar diseases are really tough to identify. Even pathologists who their whole careers are looking at forest diseases aren't necessarily very good at differentiating the different foliar diseases because typically they don't matter. What is a foliar? Do you mean by like the leaves? It's just going like after enough? the yeah. It's okay. just going after the needles. Okay. Or on on deciduous trees, going after the the leaves. But yeah, it it just uh, reduces the foliar capacity, like the engine for the tree. And so these uh, so the timber supply review for the Kispiox in two thousand to um, the chief forester at the time said, wow, this is a big deal. That was Larry Peterson. He said, do whatever you can to figure out what's going on here. And so we looked at different aspects. Was it a new disease? Was it? So we did get confirmation that it was Dothostroma needle blight. Um, that was from people down in Victoria, Brenda Callan, the mycologist with Forestry Canada. So I had confirmation of what the disease was and and then try to figure out, well, why is it different? Because the disease had been, there's records of it since the 60s throughout the area. So the disease has been here, Lodgepole Pine's been here. So what's different? And there's this concept in, in forest pathology that the amount of disease you end up with is a, is a combination of the environment, the pathogen, and the host. And that, those three in the disease triangle determine how much disease you end up with. So we knew that the host was always here and it hadn't changed. We knew that the pathogen had been here for a long time, so that left the environment. Maybe the environment's different. At the same time, there was the, the whole hockey stick thing with CO2 mm-hmm. coming out. And, this, and I, so I start going through the, the climate records. I saw a pattern in the 1990s, late 90s, that looked an awful lot like a hockey stick. And it's like, whoa, okay, this series of events of warm rain um, is just spiking at the same time that this disease is going off. So there was a lot of background information known about the pathogen, lots of baseline information done by great researchers figuring out what the environmental requirements were. This person from New Zealand that came and saw what was going on in the Kispiox based on my paper said, uh, this coincidence with this hockey stick you found isn't just a coincidence. There's all this background research that I hadn't come across yet that says, no, the disease likes warm, uh, wet conditions, and this is its all explained by what's going on here. But this spike is is completely different, like this spike in these conditions. So it's like, whoa, this is pretty cool. And so we I worked with Dave Coates and with Andreas Hammond, uh, a researcher at the time with UBC, 
I went to a conference, saw a presentation he'd done and, and said, you know, the disease that we're talking about is, is spiking at the same time that some of your forecasts are projecting how the climate's going to change here. And so he went away with that idea, came back and it's like, here's, here, it all comes together. And so we published a paper in bioscience in 2005 and it's that paper is still held up as the the best example of climate change affecting a plant disease not even a forest disease a plant disease because in other in other scenarios around the world you have people have been manipulating the system they've they've planted different varieties of wheat so you can't really look at at how how the changing climate is affecting the wheat there's too many variables this, we had it all tied down to basically a change in the environment because the disease, again, there was records of it being here. It wasn't introduced. We had records of the pine being here. It wasn't an introduced species. The thing that had changed was the climate. Overwhelmingly, I think, the, the, uh, the scales are in favor of the pathogens and the insects because their life cycle is so much shorter. They can adapt so much quicker. Trees have got to be able to hang, hang around for 80, 100 years. Things are changing so quickly. Insects can adapt quickly. Pathogens can take advantage of situations quickly. Trees, not so much. Mm. What's happened to those forests since then? I mean, this is now almost 20 years ago that you first yeah. identified those. So. so it's interesting. I was just up Highway 37. There's places where... It's just continued on, and it looks like they're dead, they're gone. And other, the, the natural regeneration of hemlock and subalpine fir, mabalus fir, and cedar, they've come back up, and the lodgepole pine's gone. It takes a long time to, to understand the relationships between a pathogen and the host and all these conditions you need to control for um, and, or try to figure out. And the same with insects, like, yeah, the temperature goes up, the insects will do better, but then they could get out of phase with the development of the, of the host species. But when you turn off the water, like this mega blocking pattern did to our weather system last year, it's, it's a game changer. Mm. And it was really, it's really scary, especially when you see it the whole way up and down the north coast, like down into Washington and Oregon, like they had salal dying off, they had ferns dying off, they had trees and, and people are thinking, oh, is it a different disease going after the salal? It's like, no, man, it's like there's no water. You paddle any of the rivers here and you see the extent of cottonwood dying back. Huge areas of cottonwood with dead tops. Cottonwoods always, you know, often have some dead tops, but this is bad. Like, those again those trees are used to used to being by the water they don't have to put their roots down too deep because there's always water well there wasn't water last year and poof they're uh, they're suffering big time and dying the spruce are dying the subalpine fir are dying up highway 37 on up up the kispiox valley like the kispiox valley the north end of the kispiox valley that's a pretty wet area and so you go up there and there's there's subalpine fir and amabilis fir dying on the side of the road. They might, I mean, they were on shallow soils, but they were decent sized trees. Being on shallow soil didn't matter. 
when it rained. When it stops raining, it matters. Right. Yeah, it's it's quite unsettling. Yeah. Climate change is happening so quickly and it's got so many fundamental implications and we are operating uh, as if it's not happening in our expectations of how the forests grow and it is a huge frustration. Next I talk with Gitsan leader Richard Wright and Wet'suwet'en chief Namox of the Tsayu clan about what they're observing on the land and how they're being impacted by changes in forest health. I'm Gapaygum Ganau. I am the spokesperson for Wilp Lutkwaziwas. Uh, English name would be Richard Wright. Um, previous, there was a drought, which really affected the vegetation, um, drying out a lot of the, the trees that rely on a wetter ecosystem like cedar. Uh, it, the drought also is a contributing factor to the fires, uh, and the fires will have a major impact on, on the, the wildlife that, that we rely on. And uh, we, we've noticed a lot of impacts to our berries, uh, our medicines. Uh, nothing is on a uh, proper schedule anymore. Uh, we, we have to adapt to uh, all the climate change activities and uh, harvest when we can, what we can. And the numbers are decreasing with everything, uh, berries, medicine, salmon, wildlife. So we're doing our part to, to really regulate and control a lot of the activities out on uh, Maddie Lee territory. I worry about preparation for winter. All animals need fat for the winter and if they don't get the proper food source at the right time, they could deplete their nutri nutrition before they actually need it. Our plants, our berries, our medicines, even those times of collection have changed. Uh, this year, we were teaching our young about cambium, which is the inner bark of the pine. And it was actually almost a month later where that cambium was still usable. We're used to getting it in May, June, you know, when the saps are flowing. We were looking at it right into July this year. The harvesting time of our medicines those have been taken off too. So we go out there and we have to monitor when it's ready. We used to have a time of year. You have to realize in Matsotan, we don't calendar our months like December, January, February. Our months are actually named after what source is available to collect, what stage of the moon it is, how that affects what plant, what medicine can you grow, what animals can you go harvest. It's not May, June, July. It's the year, of the, the month of the salmon, it's the month of the trout, it's a month of the groundhog, it's a month, month of the deer, the, all of those. And so now that has changed. Do we have to make a new calendar because of what climate change has done to our animals, our food sources, our plants, our medicines? You know, this all has to be taken into account. There's been so many changes in just this short little period of time. Will it affect us so bad that we have to change names and stories? Will it affect us so bad that there's nothing that can relate to our names, like who we are? When we take on names, it relates to a duty and what you do. Now with climate change, how bad will that affect us? Our history, our present, our future. Next, I spoke with Alana Clayson, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Bulkley Valley Research Center, about one specific species. 
Yeah, so I did pretty much all of my grad school, my master's and my PhD on white bark pine, which is a um, high elevation tree of Western North America. It grows in the Rocky Mountains and the coastal mountain chains all the way to California. And Smithers is actually situated pretty much at the northern limit of that tree species. It's a really fascinating species in that it um, has these really fatty seeds. And so it actually feeds a whole network of animals, including grizzly bears, squirrels. But its biggest um, feeder is the Clark's Nutcracker. So this bird is essential in the life cycle of whitebark pine. It collects the seed, it caches them, and that's where it sort of fattens itself up. And it also um, feeds its young on these seeds. And so there's this um, very intimate link we call it a mutualism between these two species where they both need each other and so this sort of plays into all of the research that I did in my PhD the other reason that I was really focused aside from the fact that it's a really cool ecological story and understanding how these networks influence an in, a, a single tree um, it's endangered in Canada um, it's had a really hard time lately because of an introduced pathogen. So not climate related, but um, a pathogen was introduced into Vancouver in 1910. So from Asia. And because these, this tree, white bark pine, had no natural immunity to it, it's incredibly susceptible and it dies. So that's been able to spread range wide and the tree's really gone downhill. Well, the other sort of assumption with climate change is that most species are somehow cold limited at their northern range. And so if the cold is less limiting, it warms, that means trees and other species should just slowly move north into the Arctic. So when I started my PhD, I felt pretty strongly that that wasn't the case for whitebark pine. And certainly that's what I found. Um, basically, cold isn't what is restricting its northern range. It's actually the bird. So the bird requires other tree species in order to survive. If whitebark doesn't produce seed, it needs to go somewhere else. And Douglas fir is not a very good quality option for the nutcracker, but it's the only thing we have here. So essentially, the range of whitebark pine is inextricably linked to Douglas fir. And we are um, like in the Fort St. James, that sort of Tackle Lake area. That's the northern limit of Douglas fir. So whitebark pine. Um, when I started my PhD, and it's still, you know, I think there's a lot of people that see that northern migration, that northern BC is the future, is the hope for whitebark pine, and I just don't see it. I don't see how it getting warmer is going to do anything for whitebark pine. And in fact, what my research was showing, and this is all based on sort of habitat models, assuming that the process that's really um, stressing or causing reduced habitat for whitebark is this... Um, Trees that grow faster, lodgepole pine moves in, um, spruce moves in, outgrows white bark, it dies. That's sort of what we assume is happening at those low, lower elevational limits. So with climate change, all of the models that I was looking at, that habitat is shrinking. Um, so we actually, I, what I was kind of seeing is that it's more likely that we could see a collapse of the species. So instead of moving north, mm -hmm. I would expect maybe a movement south to sort of the core habitats. The Chilcotin um, has some of the highest abundance in this province, and it's actually some of the healthiest places. It's a cold, dry habitat. The pathogen, the um, uh, white pine blisterus, doesn't do as well in that environment. It needs sort of like humid, moist air. 
And so I could see a sort of a, yeah, a retreat or a collapse to sort of those core populations. And we see that with other endangered species, you know, um, it's not that there's this sort of linear march north. You know, you, you can have sort of a collapse to peripheries, but another thing you can have is sort of a retraction to the core of its range. And I kind of, that would be my guess right now of what would be happening with white bark. Um, so as far as hope, I still kind of, I maintain hope. <laughs> um, there's certainly a lot of work that's been, that's going into restoring and recovering of this species. Um, certainly humans can't do it like the bird is the one that's going to keep this species going um but what we can do is be a little bit selective and try to basically broaden the bottleneck the genetic evolutionary bottleneck that white bark has to go through to come out the other side resistant to the blister us and somehow in all of that survive all these other stresses that like climate change and and beetle and everything else is forcing on it so it's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, narrow path, but you know things like um, we spend a lot of time and resources trying to find trees that show any kind of resistance. We collect seeds from those, we do a lot of screening on those trees, and then those are the ones that we want to go back to time and time again to grow the seedlings that we're going to then deploy and hopefully have more of that sort of genetic stock out on the landscape. The whole stress through climate change i mean once a tree establishes it's it's you know there's things that will kill it but it's going to be hard for that habitat to be lost entirely for a few sort of generations so there's time there's a little bit of time forests are both impacted by and can also assist in combating climate change forests sequester carbon for many decades there is an immediate benefit and importance to protecting bc's old growth forests and halting logging of carbon-rich forests and there's also a role reforestation can play in sucking up carbon in the years to come. I caught up with forest ecologist Dr. Jim Pojar at his home in Smithers. Well, forests provide an opportunity for uh, addressing climate change in terms of what, uh, what we call mitigation, that is... Um, uh, reducing emissions because not only does uh, does forestry logging result in emissions especially of carbon dioxide but forests themselves take up carbon dioxide from the air and they, they fix it in wood and then they hang on to that carbon as as wood, and they also produce oxygen in in the process, the process of photosynthesis. The trees, the forest hangs on to that carbon in the form of wood until the tree dies and or is cut down, and then decays or is processed at a at a mill. And also, the carbon is stored um, underground in, in the roots and also um, as soil carbon, carbon that's uh, resulted from the breakdown of decaying wood. And it's stored in 
the other organisms of the forest, like shrubs and mosses and and animals that live in the forest. So the, the forest is a it's a carbon carbon factory, you could say. I prefer to think of it as a bank in that it stores the carbon for a long for what can be a long time like centuries so if the if the province really wants to get serious about carbon stewardship there's several things that they could do or we can do we British Columbians number one is to um, practice more energy conservation try and use less of it and increase our efficiency of use another big part of it of a carbon stewardship strategy would be to reduce the allowable annual cut which has been too high it's been bloated for for decades and it's uh, it's one of the root the root causes of all the mill closures or or temporary shutdowns currently in British Columbia we're seeing the impacts of the excessive cut combined with with the losses from beetles and wildfires the impacts of that loss of volume or as the industry likes to call it, fiber. <laughs> so it's just not out there to cut anymore. And we should be doing uh, more car partial cutting, less clear cutting, especially in the, in the uh, primary forests, the mature and old forests. There's no reason to cut everything down. And it, it would also help to uh, manage more commercial forests on long rotations, like give the forests 150, 250 years to grow instead of trying to cut them at age 70. The, the carbon benefit of that is uh, because of the increasing storage. The stand slowly builds up uh, its reserves, its stores of carbon as it gets older. To address climate change, uh, just if we could summarize, so it would be to uh, protect more old growth that we have. I mean, we yep. cut, protect the old growth that we have, uh, cut, do more partial cutting on a longer cycle. So mm -hmm. 100, did you say 150 to 250 years? Yeah. Um, reduce the slash burning obviously the slash piles and and, and and the slash burning and and plant more trees plant more trees like decommissioning roads and planting more trees planting trees where there's been disturbance already or, yeah, or uh, fire because the companies uh, a wildfire is the responsibility of the province the industry does not have to legally go back and, and replant. So you could call that um, sort of forest rehabilitation where you go into these areas that have been burned uh, 
or, or beetle, beetle kill, and plant, continue to plant trees. Because many of them will regenerate naturally, especially uh, lodgepole pine after fire. Mm -hmm. But some of them need help. And it, especially like uh, in the interior plateau or there, there are other opportunities for for planting uh, degraded forests, for example, in northeastern BC with all those uh, seismic lines. It's just a welter of uh, a fragmentation of linear disturbance and it's not getting replanted. It could be. It would have a big impact. What struck me during this episode is how much cultures are being impacted too. With seasons changing and an inability to rely on when and if berries will be ready, stories and names may need to change. There's a sense of loss, but also hope in how forests can sequester and store carbon, especially our irreplaceable old growth. We need to protect what remains of those and look at forest management in a new way that wholly integrates climate change. We've known about some of these climate impacts on our regional forests since the late 1990s. It's time we start to see the forest for the trees, for their biodiversity, their habitat, their symbiotic relationships, their role in hydrology and stream cooling, and their ability to suck and store carbon. Thanks for listening to this podcast of 54 Degrees North, Climate Chronicles of the Bulkley Valley. This episode on forest health has been recorded on the unceded territory of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Thanks to Wet'suwet'en Community Forest for a grant and Northwest Institute for supporting the creation of this series. Lots of gratitude to Facundo Gastio Zorro for the artwork and feedback. Thanks to Los Gringos Salvajes and Rochelle Van Zenten for the amazing music. CICK Smithers Community Radio for some mentorship and for airing this series. And also to Alex Woods, Chief Namox, Richard Wright, Dr. Jim Pojar, Dr. Alana Clayson, Will McKenzie for the interviews. This podcast is produced by Nikki Skuse and edited with a lot of help from Pam Hassan. Check out our other episodes on chronicling climate impacts and actions in the Bulkley Valley on issues such as salmons in our rivers, extreme weather, and bugs. Please rate us and comment where you get your podcasts. And feel free to drop us a line at 54DegreesNorthPodcast at gmail.com. That's 54DegreesNorthPodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks.